You're listening to the film podcast about indie filmmaking and big budget films with award-winning filmmaker Craig Newland. And welcome to another episode of the film podcast. Imagine not having a music composer or production designer on your film. That's a very different looking film. And how strange would it have been to have Titanic with those two elements taken out of it? Or a film like The Joker, the powerful combination of these two elements working together, no doubt elevates a film when executed really well to help achieve and realise the vision of any filmmaker. And one of this year's certainties for an Oscar nomination for Best Picture is going to be Belfast. And Belfast had an incredible set design construction for the Belfast Street, which was completely created from scratch. And Jim Clay, the production designer and all of the set builders, did an amazing job, given the budget and the restricted shoot time of just six weeks. And the film has an incredible period look. You look at all of that production design, and if you were to take that away, you have nothing to tell your story against. And it can be argued that production design, like on Belfast, was fundamental to the overall storytelling. And similarly, the production designer of The Alienist, Mara Lapierre Sloop, who with her team built the New York Street, has attention to detail that is stunning and spectacular. The production design of The Alienist is the foundation of what holds that whole series together. And music has the ability to help craft a story with layered emotional textures and a thematic connectivity that can help glue the story's arc in an imaginative, dynamic way, switching on that subconscious subtext in a way that can be magical to watch. And music can have very powerful, dark, disturbing elements to it, as Academy Award-winning composer Hilda Ginnatodia showed us in The Joker. So this week, we're going to go back to two previous podcasts when I spoke to the production designer of The Alienist, Mara Lapierre Sloop, and the magic of what she created, and also talk to film composer Tom McLeod, who gives the filmmaker a lot to think about when scoring your films. And I started off by asking Mara what ideas for The Alienist had cemented in by the time the team had arrived at pre-production for the look of the show, and in particular the authenticity of showcasing New York in that time period. We weren't interested in a stylized version of the period. We were interested in depicting things in their kind of raw form. And in some ways, doing stylized history is much easier because you don't have as many layers, you don't have as many details. It's not like I can just, you know, go to the garbage bin and take out some garbage and it's appropriate for 1890. Even the garbage has to be created. You know, there, and there was so much that we did about that period that's so fascinating about a lack of sanitation, a lack of, you know, garbage pickup and things like that. So it was a very, very dirty, very raw space in New York City at the time. And I think that as storytellers, we were interested in how that kind of affects mood and tone and um, how people live in, live in these spaces, how classes clash between each other, what it means to live in poverty, what it means to live in extreme wealth, um, and to see how those worlds bump up against each other. We were committed very early on to depicting that the best we could. And <laughs> occasionally we'd find cartoons from magazines at the Times or just anecdotal stories from biographies or, or from other things. And one of the things we had read was that sometimes the streets were so filthy. There was a neighborhood in Brooklyn where there was a two-story pile of horse manure. Carrie, Carrie can really fixate on details like that. And so he was like, we're doing it. We're gonna, like, we're gonna make this two-story pile of manure somewhere in our streets because I mean, it's so fascinating. In the end, we did not do that, but we did have our between our greens people and scenic artists 
we fabricated a whole lot of horseshit to to dress in the sets. Um, I really am drawn to projects that can be so visceral and the movie Perfume was something that I thought about a lot where it's a, it's a story all about scent and smell. Mm. And one of the things that I really love is just like, you can, it's almost like you can smell these things. It's, it's how things are featured, but it's also about really feeling the textures of, of that time and the dirt. And, and that was something I, 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 was, I really wanted to bring into our story as well. The impact of the chaos of New York City at the time is something that you can really feel on the show and almost taste it. Yeah. And again, it's something that I'm always very interested and committed to and to the point that I think some people think that I'm crazy. But on the back lot that we built in, in Budapest, there was a lot of people that were not happy that I was doing this, but I'd go with birdseed. And as I walked the set, just to give notes to the crew later in the week, I'd scatter birdseed around the back lot so that and this was months before we even started filming, but it was just so that birds would start coming so that it, there would be this kind of, again, this interactive quality of nature kind of in the street itself. Unfortunately, it also brought some rats, which, but for me, that was great, but not so great for production who, who wasn't thrilled to have rats on our giant backlot set. The character details are all there. How do you break down a character's unique assets specific to them? Character uh, and storytelling, visual storytelling is really, really important. And, and to me, probably what drew me to the job, my background is in architecture and in design is something I've always been really interested in. But film and television as a medium allows for the integration of design and character and storytelling, storytelling, which is really just the best job I could imagine. It's it's combining so many different parts of, of things that I'm really fascinated in. So you know, a, a show like The Alienist, obviously there's there's enormous world building that's required, but it was also super important to focus on details as well about who these people are specifically. And so a lot of the times on any project, what I'll do is after getting the script, I really like to flesh out who the characters are. So there's a certain amount on the page. Sometimes you have source material to get additional information from, but then I like to take it further and kind of create a lush biography of who this person is, like kind of creating the backstory. So for Laszlo Kreitzler, for example, we knew from the novels that he was actually from Hungary and which was fortunate because we were in Hungary. We also knew, you know, elements about world travel and, and this kind of intellectual curiosity that was that was really important to him. And so with the set decorator, we sat down very early and talked about what type of art that person would collect. And, you know, are there pieces from his family, like heirloom pieces from Hungary? Um, and we looked at a lot of different like folk artists, um, primitive artists in Hungary at the time, again, kind of pushing this intellectual curiosity. He's not just interested in fine art, but he's also interested in the study of the human mind. And so folk art became something we were really interested in. So even just in the artwork that's on the walls in Kreitzler's house or in the Kreitzler Institute, we really put a lot of thought and energy into what types of pieces he was collecting, not just how they would look, but just this kind of engagement in personhood and, and, and how they think and what they curate in, the, in their lives. You know, on a show like Mrs. America, where we had so many icons of the feminist movement, we wanted them all to be really, you know, real people that could be understood in more detail by, by getting to see these glimpses into their environments. And so even the book collections that, that we had in their personal offices or homes were curated to represent their interests you know, what they were writing about, what they were investigating, but also what we knew they studied at university, what their connections, again, in childhood were to, to literature and, and, and other things. So I, I really do try to put a lot of emphasis with the entire art department, whether it's set deck, whether it's the, the design spaces, into fleshing out um, identities of people. And it, it may not be something that even the audience can see on their television screen, but when an actor goes into that space and they have this totally realized world, I think it can inform performance, even if that's all it's lending itself to. If it's helping make the project better, then, then that's a success. 
Yes, those small attention to details are never lost on actors, that is for sure. Now, the colour palette is really important to develop, as is the costume department, to sync up the whole world. How would you, as the production designer, develop that all the way through with the costume designer for a show like The Alienist? From the get-go, he has done incredible things. He's working on the new Star Wars series. Like He's just a super talented guy. And I think we really had a mutual respect for the intensity at which we try to engage our worlds, our mutual worlds. And from the get-go, we kind of sat down and talked about color influence on each specific character. Sometimes you want a character to kind of blend into their world and be completely symbiotic with that place and other times you want it to be disjointed and part of that's about the emotional journey that's happening in the scene and then sometimes you don't want to be too precious about it and like you you kind of want chance to let our worlds kind of mix together just like they do in the real world so michael was a really really wonderful person to work with and michael was heavily involved with kind of ensuring an authentic look in the background as well so that you know, people's hair, makeup, um, the extras that were being chosen also kind of represented the period and place. Being able to work with people that are just as committed to flushing out the full world is really exciting and satisfying. How did the show come to you? And perhaps as an insightful look into a production designer's very early discussion about what you would bring to the role for a series like The Alienist, how did that initial discussion go? And what was your approach in talking about the world you would need to create and how you were able to articulate that in the process for becoming the, whether or not you auditioned for the role, I don't know, but if you were auditioning, how that whole process unfolded. I had worked with Carrie Fuganaga, True Detective, and we had just wrapped up on a project that actually was never made, but we were finishing up together. He mentioned that The Alienist was something that he was likely going to be involved with and that he, he wanted me to do it. So it was kind of being offered to me. I have to say, knowing the history of The Alienist and how rigorously it had been attempted to be made in the past, I didn't really believe that it was something that was going to happen. But then as it kind of pushed further and further along, it became clear and clear that it, it was a reality. The dynamic I have working with Carrie, I think we're both kind of obsessive about research as a creative dynamic working with him. He is constantly pushing and challenging to think about story, to think about character, to think about um, pushing things further, pushing the boundaries of filmmaking as a medium. And that collaboration is one that it's, it's extremely challenging, but one that I really value. And I think it's some of the best work I've done has been with, with Carrie. When we initially started talking about The Alienist, it was clear that the desire from everybody involved was to try to capture this enormous world that's presented in the novel. But, you know, so for him, this period was something that he really wanted to be visceral and realized on a design level. And so very early on, the discussions were about avoiding a stylized, overly romanticized version of the period and and to really dive into authenticity, which isn't always pretty. And so that was something we were committed to very, very early on in in the process. Mara, often a director might not know the world immediately in the palette and the tonal shifts in colour and designs. It's your job to convey that. Can you give, especially directors that are listening to the podcast, a sense of how you initially work through all of that pre-production manoeuvring, because that's really what it is, of all of what you are thinking about a show like The Alienist to express that to a director? Yeah, I mean, the thing that is so important, I think, for designers, directors, for everyone to understand is that filmmaking and television making, it's always this kind of um, moving, shifting, adapting animal. And that when I read a script, I very quickly can kind of imagine place and, and time and setting and 
in detail, but what I can't inform is how it's going to be lit and what type of shots are being considered for the scene and the emotion that's being conveyed in the scene. And so when I envision a story, most of the time I'm seeing spaces without people in it. And so what I have to engage in is the other components of this organism that's coming to life. I can kind of start out with an overall concept of something, but that then is very heavily informed by the cinematographer when that person starts and finding out concepts for lighting and something like The Alienist, where we're just on the cusp of electricity. You know, I think only two or three locations in our entire show had electricity at the time. You, of course, are not only working with the director, but the cinematographer plays a vital role lighting for a project like The Alienist. From a production designer's point of view, can you tell us just how important that interaction is and the key things that you work through on a show like this? I think it was really important to find out if the strategy for for lighting the show was also to go naturalistic with like what we were doing with the design, which that was the plan in our cinematographer, PJ Dillon out of Ireland. We were both really committed to having this kind of natural feeling. And so most of our sets were rigged with actual gas lines so that we had gas fixtures and our more opulent spaces. And we had oil lamps in our poorer spaces. But I think one thing you have to realize very quickly is that that means there's going to be a lot of darkness. And so that also informs color and texture on walls. It also, you know, kind of clues us in that a lot of our spaces are going to fall off into darkness on the edges. So it's an ongoing process to kind of flush things out and palette in the day, a daytime scene lit with natural light look like one thing, but then at night with an oil lamp will look completely different. So So much of it's kind of trial and error, camera testing, talking things through, understanding costumes, understanding what reflection can do, what what sheen added to paint can do to manipulate a space. There's always this kind of trial and error and testing back and forth of how do we amplify what's happening for the characters in those moments, but also flesh out a realized world. And how nervous were you at the time looking at the candles lit for a scene, (laughs) especially for some of the detail? You might have been thinking, ah, no, I can't quite see that detail, but what do you do? Oh, gosh, yeah. Well, and it's always hard, too, when the final edit comes out and, you know, you you build these huge, enormous sets and then the entire scene is cut together with, like, close-ups and just, you know, coverage of the actors. But those little peekaboos of the world around them, to me, are just as much part of the world building as like a huge wide master. And I think that one thing all of us have to do working in this industry is, like I said, when when you start a project, no one has any idea what that final product is going to be. And we all put our stamp on it. But it's it's a moving organism. And even the, the editor, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, there's so much that's out of our control. I think we all have to learn pretty early on that you can't be precious because you won't live a very long life if you um, have to mourn every single one of your babies when they when they die. 1890s New York from an historical aspect alone is quite challenging. And I would imagine that when you realize that this finally is going to happen, how daunting was that at the very beginning when the scale of the job itself sets in and you realize this is actually about to happen after such a long gestation period of the alienist not happening? I don't think I slept for two years. I think that um, I would have kind of waking nightmares of ruining the show because there's there, there was so much at stake with, you know, like I said, this was a really beloved novel and, and there had been so many extremely talented people before me that had, had tried to get this thing off the ground and, and here we were finally making it. So I definitely felt the burden of expectation on my shoulders the whole time and um, really was was constantly kind of trying to push myself and our team for providing something that I that I hope people were, were happy with at the end of the day. But, but no, it was a very, very stressful period of time. The series has been adapted from the novel, as you say. It's sometimes a fine line of how far outside the world in the novel that you go versus the world 
in the screen series and stay authentic. How do you approach that? Because sometimes they can be two different looking worlds. It's true. And I think adapting from source material is always very complicated, or, or even in a case like Mrs. America, adapting from real people in real life. There's so much that can be, you can kind of hold things up next to each other and, and question why decisions were made to, to modify things. And in a story like The Alienist, that's about, you know, most of the crime scenes are actual physical locations that still exist in New York. And you can literally hold a photograph up against to them and, and can kind of question the reality of those things. There, there's a lot of rigor to satisfy the audience that read the novel. There's a lot of rigor to satisfy the historians who want to look at these things and compare them side by side. Then you also just the nature of a mystery where there's crime solving going on. People have the ability to pause and zoom in and, and look at details. And so every little thing can be scrutinized. And, and so on a show like The Alienist, again, where you're working at such dramatic scales of storytelling in the city, but then also an investigation, you know, we really spent a lot of time thinking about the forensic pathology, the systems of investigation that were available in the time period is the beginning of fingerprinting. There's, there's just a lot happening. And so we hired many different consultants, um, whether it was forensic pathologists, whether it was handwriting or fingerprint experts, but we constantly were kind of questioning and challenging and making sure we were being as authentic as possible. But there's also times where decisions have to be made to make to take some creative licenses to just push the story along. And, and there's, you know, things that you discover that weren't completely accurate from the novel. Like, for instance, the opening crime scene is on the Williamsburg Bridge, but the construction was actually several years later. So there were some creative licenses already taken in the novel. And so then as filmmakers, we have to make the choice, well, do we stay true to the source material or do we go with actual history? So there's a lot of questioning and re-examining re that have to happen and choices that have to be made about what's best for all the various parties involved. The 1890s images and how you went about your researching when you, let's say, couldn't find images to inform you for any part of the world that you were creating, did you find that the written word could often breach the gap of any historical photos that you couldn't find? Absolutely. Um, we were very fortunate to be able to work with um, one of our consultants was a gentleman by the name of um, Richard Zacks who wrote a book called Island of Vice, which was kind of chronicled the tenure of Teddy Roosevelt when he was the police commissioner in New York. And I was lucky enough when we were scouting New York, Richard came out several times. And so, I, you know, I went with him to the Tenement Museum in New York. And his book is so flesh with details about the different neighborhoods and kind of anecdotal stories of what was happening on the street. But it really helped flesh out sense, a sense of place for our investigation as we moved around the city. And he, he was such a great asset to be able to connect with as we went along. And, and again, he wouldn't always have a, a visual to go along with it, but the intensive research that he had put into creating the, his, his book really helped me understand things in a, in a really cohesive way. And with the written word, there is probably more wiggle room for creative license, let's put it that way, to bring something alive. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot more flexibility there to to kind of expand and, and evolve and, and, and make it and put your own stamp on it. And because the series is based on finding a serial killer, I read somewhere that you are jokingly referred to as the Queen of Darkness based on <laughs> some of your other previous work. So it's a genre that you feel comfortable working in by the sound of things. Yeah, it is funny. Um, I had a good stretch there between True Detective and Split and the alienist i felt like i was just the person you called when there was a serial killer on the loose and it's funny because growing up i read a lot of mysteries and thrillers and so i don't think my parents were that surprised but i do think my husband and some friends of ours the ones that coined the term the, the queen of darkness but i'm actually a very like light-hearted jovial person and it as it turns out now i don't really watch a lot of those things anymore because 
there's only so many forensic pathology books that you can own and you can stay up at night looking at horrible crime scene photos. At some point, you need a break, break from that world. And essentially, The Alienist is a 10-hour movie. How did the shooting for you and your team manage the time restraints that would have been required on a tight schedule? Because once the, the train leaves the station for something like this, you've got to keep up. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always d- difficult, I think, especially when you're shooting television. Tendency is to have multiple directors, multiple cinematographers, and multiple ADs. So as an example, on The Alienist, we had five shooting blocks with different teams, and the only through lines are the production designer, the producers, and like the costume designers, the other department heads. So in television, the onus really falls on those consistent department heads to, to provide a consistency of the show so that you're not kind of, so that it doesn't feel like five different movies, that it feels like it's one cohesive project. And so and sometimes you can feel a little bit like the bad cop that's constantly policing and saying, well, no, no, you can't do that because this person's doing that um, two more episodes from now. And if you do that, you kind of, you expose something that we're not ready to expose. Or if you shoot it like this, it, it reveals something that you're not, you're not supposed to, to see. So it's, it's a, Difficult position, I must say, to be in. In a a show like The Alienist, we had two units shooting simultaneously. So you're basically, on any given day, kind of stretched between four or five different sets, trying to make sure that that authenticity is being monitored and consistent. So it's very challenging. Television, every time I finish a television show, I say, I'm never doing that again. And then someone entices me with a really great story. And, And I will say, as a... As a viewer, I think that there's long format storytelling is something I'm, I'm very interested in, in. And I think what television is doing right now is really incredible. As an actual filmmaker, I hate it. You're literally prepping, like you said, if you know, with a 10 hour television show, you're prepping five movies simultaneously. And the expectation is this, their movie quality, you know, television isn't was it what it was even you know 15 20 years ago there's the same kind of demand for quality output as there is with with film it's a very challenging medium and i can tell you right now on the project that i'm on in south korea those same pains we're, we're suffering those same pains as we have two teams of people that we're trying to scout all over south korea and there's literally not enough hours in the day to make everybody happy so it's it's a tough one I want to go back to Budapest. The backlot sets that you built for the show were, I think, 10 city blocks. How long did it take you to build something as comprehensive as that? And what were some of the challenges? Oh, gosh, those backlots. I, you know, I had nightmares when I was doing it, and I still have. I still wake up sometimes um, reliving the fear of not completing those sets. We knew we needed pretty extensive street scenes for the storytelling. And in Budapest, unlike in, in most countries with filmmaking hubs, you don't have one construction team. Every single set goes to bid with a pool of different companies. And then the producers um, work with the, the art department to make a choice. And if you're lucky, you have a producing team that isn't just going to pick the cheapest bid, but you're going to pick the construction company that might be the most skilled at, you know, for example, woodworking, like finished carpentry for an, an interior set. They might be more expensive, but they are going to deliver the best set in, in the most efficient timeline. So for the backlot, because we were under the gun with delivery dates, we knew when we got there, what kind of boots on the ground in early fall, so around October, that we would need to start filming in March. And we still had design work to do. So we brought in set designers literally from all over the world. It was kind of an all-hands-on-deck situation. So we had people from Italy, the United States, the UK, Hungary. It was hard sometimes. I'd walk into a room and literally no one would speak English, but they also didn't speak the same languages either. So it was, you know, just communicating design information was a a day-to-day challenge. But we ended up determining that we couldn't have one construction company build the whole set in time. And so we ended up hiring three different companies and we kind of designated a different area for each of them. So of our big backlot street set, um, we had 
an uptown Manhattan street, um, which was where Kreitzler lived, um, which had some really complicated stonework and finished detailing. We had kind of a midtown row house section that was less complicated. And then we had our tenement streets that had a ton of exposed brick and, and fire escapes on the facades. So we used the three different companies and they kind of built <laughs> um, simultaneously and we're, we're meeting in the middle sometimes. And we had a few awkward moments where like things weren't completely lining up and I'm glad we weren't building a bridge because it would have been a total disaster. And then my, my biggest concern was having three different companies with, that our paint finishes and our plaster finishes wouldn't be consistent, that there might be some discrepancy in, in the level of craftsmanship. So we ended up bringing uh, a really, really talented chart scenic from the United States. He brought in a few assistants from all over the world. It's a hodgepodge team. And they oversaw all the scenic finishes. They made samples with each of the construction crews so that we really ensured a consistency in the look of things. And then at the end, the final aging pass was done by Richard and his team so that there was kind of one final coat that that tied it all together. And I really think it, it, it turned out well. We were, we were fortunate to have him there with us. I love the detail of that because most people got no clue that three different companies, potentially three three different paint finishes, not that they would ever notice, but you would notice. And that is the most important thing. When you notice something, it's got to be absolutely perfect. Yeah, uh, totally, 100%. And, and like, and those are the types of things that I lose sleep over. It's just kind of an erratic paint finish can will, will drive me absolutely crazy. Um, the, the other thing that we knew is that we'd be, you know, these streets were never static. They always had to kind of morph and play into to something different. So in one sequence, it could be Chinatown. In the next, you know, the next day, we might be shooting as the Lower East Side and the Jewish Ghetto. And so the signage and the sign writing was was really important. And the sign writing to me is also a huge part of capturing the period in a, in a really authentic way. And so they would come out and paint directly onto shop front windows. Um, we ha would have them do you know signs on brickwork, but then we'd also have them you know construct and build sign blanks on metal and wood. And again, to me, that's the part of the job that's just it doesn't get any better when you have a, an expert team. And as difficult as it was and as challenging as it was to build those 10 city blocks, once the backlot sets were built, at least you could breathe a little easier at that point. Well, what's crazy about The Alienist is the backlot sets only actually were satisfying about 15% of our set list. So it wasn't like, oh, if we just build the back lot, we've done it. We've, we've won. We then had to build Kreitzler's house. Um, we had to build, uh, you know, on stage. It was a two-story stage set. We built the Kreitzler Institute. We had to build an interior tenant, tenement apartment that was six stories high inside on the stage with a staircase for a chase scene. And an entire side of the staircase had to wild for a, a shot that was wanted. And then we shot literally hundreds of locations in Budapest that, you know, you can't walk into any building anywhere in the world right now and shoot it for 1890. So just the, the work and planning that has to go into a space to remove electrical outlets or wallpaper or paint a wall or even put furniture in. So the backlet was kind of just the tip of the iceberg of, of all the many, many things we had to do. But again, it's like, it's both what makes this job completely insane and, and completely incredible. And composing is somewhat like a screenwriter. You have to take the time, sit down with a clear mind and space to creatively write the notes. And I feel very much from a director's point of view that this is something not given enough thought to. We tend to just take the process for granted as directors and producers and perhaps Talk to us um, through that process of getting a new film to score and how you do that initial set arranging. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting process and it probably varies a lot from composer to composer. I've, I've read quite a lot of you know the great composers on this about how they approach things. I know Howard Shaw, for instance, talks about how he likes to dream the world and he'll think of ideas and lie down and, and imagine the space and half 
consciously have subconsciously i suppose try and explore the world uh, of of the film and of the narrative so I've, I've kind of done that in various modes like it's been really useful um to try especially you know when you start um it always begins i think with the script but sometimes you'll be working with the first cut or in a rough assembly often i, I guess also you're working with a locked cut you know and you come in quite late in the process so it really does depend a bit you know where you come in the process and Probably most composers like like any like anyone in a creative thing. Um, the more time you have to explore, the better. So it's it's always nice to come in early and have that processing time. I've worked on projects where I've actually imagined the world for quite a long time before I've had to start writing anything, and I found that to be really good because often by the time you write and you're kind of amped to go, and you've you've already got ideas, um, and you can just sort of rush to 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 really exercising those. But quite often. Uh, you know, you have to kind of explore a whole palette to know what isn't right as much as what is right. And going through that process can take time. And so I think there is a, you know, a kind of throwing mud at the wall sometimes approach where you, you are looking for those little bits of magic. You know also that with enough time, what I always find, you get those happy accidents. There's, there's little things that you kind hmm. of really can't design. They just come from throwing ideas around. Sometimes um, that might be with the director. It might be with someone else, a, a, a musician. You know, eventually you start to, the pieces start to fall into place. That's something I know Danny Elfman talks about is this puzzle. You start with a whole lot of ideas um, and you don't really know where they're going to fit in the puzzle. And quite often I actually will come up with a bunch of themes and I'll go, this is a coming of age theme or this is the, the deceit theme or the, the, you'll often assign it to something and, and that's really helpful but you also can't be too wedded to that because once you get into the process of, of writing with the picture, uh, you know, you often find that those things change or that something that is um, very applicable is also usable somewhere else. You know, you, you, in the architecture of the score, you're always looking for those elements that can connect one scene with another scene with another scene, you know, one idea with an idea that continues on. So that hopefully um, it's subconscious, but you know, the audience is essentially being affected without even realizing it, that they're connecting the dots, obviously in the story itself, but also in the sort of sub-themes and the things that are going on beneath beneath the obvious narrative. That's really interesting that you do this form of pre-visualization and living in the world, because not all music composers can do that. Figuring out a music score for a lot of composers really is like just making it up as you go along which is the way that most composers work. Because if you're building a house, you have a set of plans, you have the blueprint for the project, but man, scoring music is at the other end of that whole equation, isn't it? Yeah, that's a really good point. It is actually the very last thing. We, we really, you know, we know, especially filmmakers, we, we understand how important those things are. I mean, I, I often say, um, I often say sound can make, you know, bad visuals look look great, um, whereas often bad sound will make good visuals look bad. It's there's something that you believe when you believe the world of the sound, then what your mind is telling you you're seeing is different. And so that's fascinating. You know, I know Hans Zimmer has explored this whole thing with color and how you can see different color depending on what music you put on something. And so, yeah, there's no doubt that you can change things quite a lot at the very end with the with the music and with the sound. But typically, as you say. The composing part of it that is one of the last pieces in the puzzle so sometimes you are the glue that helps hold hold narrative together you can you can come in and you can help you know bring a cohesion i think to the whole film and you're always thinking of that, that emotional stuff that those big moments that, that need that deeper emotion and also trying to sort of give the whole film the tone that, that it might need so in that way you can play a really important role in i suppose steering you know but you're, you're the last I suppose you're fine-tuning in terms of the, the course that's being plot by the director from the beginning of the film to the end of that process of making it. So a composer has, has got some ability, I suppose, to just help the director realise that last important thing. And you know, never more important, for example, if you're working in a comedy, particularly black comedy, because often what you're seeing on screen is in black comedy is very, very serious. And the music's telling us that it's not serious. <laughs> it's, it's telling us it's OK to laugh. And that's crucial, and that's right at the end. So obviously editors have to play with, with temp score as they go because they need to be seeing the film take the shape and have the tone for, that it's going to, to have. 
but yeah, you really don't know until until that that last bit of score and bit of sound goes into the film. For, from your point of view as a director, you you'll know that that critical last element can make a big difference. But at the same time, you may not have have um, imagined the music before you start the project, and I guess that's where a, a composer um, can bring something early on potentially. So some, sometimes the director will bring the composer in early. Um, I know Morricone was brought in really early, really early with all the Serge Leone movies. You know, he would, I know Once Upon a Time in the West, he essentially pre-composed score for that whole thing. And they were actually shooting to his music. And then, of course, he would have recreated that music or rearranged it for the final film. But that's a really interesting thing to do. Yes, some directors, as, as you say, they like to have the score before they, they start shooting. However, most of the time, because of indie budgets, that's just not possible. I know that that's what they did with the Joker. She composed some music cues before they even got to principal photography. Some of that music ended up staying in the actual finished product. Yeah, I, I certainly think it's it's a cool thing to explore. You know, you're right, it doesn't happen that often. It's not, um, it's sometimes just not practical. And in other cases, it's perhaps there isn't, you know, a, a budget to, to, to make that happen. But yeah, I think I think it can bring real value. There's probably times where it would be really important and, I, and, and where, where there's a tonal element that's critical um, for the performance. So, you know, I'm, I would imagine that there's some, some films more than others, uh, that, that sort of stuff can be less obvious. And that's where I think it would, would help potentially on set. It could help the actors. But I guess, you know, if it's a genre film and it's fairly clear, then it may not be something that's helpful. I've had a couple of projects where people have created something early on and the director has played it on set. And he said, you know, that the response was fantastic from, from everybody. But then that was a comedy. So I think it did make quite a difference. It would be interesting to see with, with a serious drama how that would go and, and whether or not it would make a huge difference. But it's a nice luxury anyway. And temp music, the big elephant in the room, good or bad for a director to use temp as a building block of thoughts and ideas for the composer to look at? Yeah, temp music. It, it really is um, a contentious issue, I suppose. I, I personally think it's really a great thing. I think there's no doubt that when you're building a film in the edit suite, you just, you, you need to have music there with you. Good editors, you know, most, most editors I work with are really good with music. They have, I think, probably an inherent sense of rhythm because there's so much rhythm and cutting. So most of the guys, they've used really good team music and they've found great cues from all over the place. And that's probably the trick, really, is that you can end up with a really strange, disparate mix of music when you're when you're working with temp, so you'll often have some really great scenes and sequences um, that probably needed temp to help them make sense. But of course, when you watch you know when you watch the whole thing in context, it's it's where you you realise that you need a composer to, to bring all the all the all those pieces of music together, which you just can't really get from a temp score because um, because typically temp will be taken from any number of places and they may or may not connect. So you're not going to get the thematic connections with temp generally, and you also don't get textural connections. So, yeah, I think I personally find it really useful. Two two things. One is the temp can really really help you define the tone, and there are exceptions to that for sure. Where I think the temp that I've seen come to me has been perhaps not right for the film, and I've had to say, oh, I just don't think that's quite the right direction, and that's great because then that, that's a whole conversation that you have. So invariably, it's a very useful starting point but as well as that it helps helps the director be become clear about where the music needs to be so that's an excellent sort of spotting device what we call spotting which is you know which is the decisions about where music starts where it stops so um and of course that will change because the composer is always going to have a different idea about that and will make other suggestions but i think that's a really good starting point and also for tone it can be you know very very helpful i think be playing with the, the tone in the edit suite and having music there can be really really helpful but there are there are certainly times where a temp can be annoying if it's not quite right probably the other problem with a temp for a composer is that typically the the, the director the editor um anyone who's been seeing the film working with it for a wee while with temp it's completely natural that they would start to love that music um and love what it's doing with the pictures and so i think it's then hard for that to be essentially put aside and bring in a whole new, whole new <laughs> set of music. So 
that's probably one of the most challenging parts of it, I think. And there's no doubt many composers have had this had this happen to them where, you know, they've, they've written something for a scene, but it wasn't really what was in the temp, and they've ended up having to rewrite it more like what was in the temp, which is a, a creatively frustrating thing. I always listen to a temp once. I'll try not to listen to it more, and I'll try and absorb the key elements. It could be tempo, energy, tone, some texture, some drive, and then I'll try and forget it because I know that if I listen to it again and again, I'll end up naturally wanting to copy it and then I'll be really frustrated because I just can't uh, find something original. So, yeah, that, that's probably the, the balance is, is allowing yourself to be to take what's useful from it and not ultimately uh, be impacted or be affected by it too much. I made this mistake. Well, I thought it was a mistake. I, I grabbed a Howard Shaw piece of temp and it was the opening cue for the the film and i i thought well this is probably a bad idea to put this this grand sounding orchestra piece because the composer is never going to be able to match this type of approach the the first couple of passes with the the music composer it was just miles off off the pace but on the third approach that was a happy ending in terms of a a, a temp piece i want to come back to editors editing to temp and the rhythm because one of the problems is that editors can cut to a temp of music and have all the rhythm and the pacing uh, in that piece of temp that's quite dangerous because you're kind of baking in the rhythm of the cut if you're not going to have the the actual score matching up yeah that that's a really interesting one I think I'm sure an editor would argue that you just need a rhythm, you need a tempo in mind if you're if you're cutting an action sequence. So I think where you know temp music can help enormously um, with those. And I've worked on a couple of big action scenes with some really good editors, and they've no doubt cut it according to that to the to the time there. But having said that, in some cases, even with those situations, I've actually gone away and changed the tempo, and and it's worked really well. So. I'm not sure that you need to necessarily match tempo when it comes to that sort of fast-cutting action sequence stuff. You know, uh, I think Danny Elfman had a, had a theory about that, that any tempo can work as long as you just find the tempo. And so there may be more than one tempo that works. But it's a really good point because, you know, editors are naturally going to you know, find the rhythm that, that feels good and, and find and the tempo will, will inevitably have... have you know, have influenced the temp or the temp track will influence that, that tempo that they're cutting to. So you kind of do often follow it. But I, I have changed it, surely enough. I have changed it a couple of times and it's worked really, really well. So you, you're then looking for different anchor points when you do that. You kind of um, line up your, your tempo with the, with the cut. You forget what was on the temp and you're just looking at how you can how you can make what, what, what was their work. And then obviously the editor sees it after and, and you know, we've had some good conversations about that and they're often surprised too that it will that it can be different. But yeah, I think that's still one of those things where a composer might come along and go, oh, I just feel like the tempo should have been quicker. There should be more energy. Or I'm going to use a different tempo because I've already got a whole theme in mind and my tempo is a 3-4 or a 6-8 instead of a 4-4 and that will change quite considerably. So it might, even, it might need to be faster to get the same effect because it's now, you know, a three instead of a four. So, you know, those kinds of things, you really don't know until you try. There's no, there's, there's certainly no absolutes when it comes to that stuff. Cinema language can be expressed a lot through music cues, and music often can make a strong statement to bring some kind of attitude that can help define tone and story to a film. But often the method to achieve this can be a mystery for a composer to break down and land in the place that they want it to. How do you view all of that in terms of expressing cinema language through music cues? Yeah, music's strange in that way. It is, it is, a, it is, a, it is a mysterious thing. Um, why does it work? And I've had um, you know many kind of play around, many a play around with a scene with a with a different piece of music with a different approach. And I'm sure that, you know, this is certainly what editors do and music editors do a lot to really to, to explore what, what, what is going to work best for that scene. But 
I think ultimately the director will make the call anyway because you can completely change the meaning of a scene with, with a piece of music. No doubt you can lighten a scene and you can make it more intense, uh, you can make it darker. That, that, that kind of power, obviously, you know, it ha has, to be, has to be sort of done very sensitively with, you know, the, the, always the narrative in mind. I, I've, there's been a few times where I, I might have a scene and I've explored something and it's a little bit different to what was in the temple, perhaps what we even discussed uh, when we were spotting the, the film, the, the director and I, and that that's quite fun because then then you then you just simply offer that as an alternative, and sometimes it will just be really well received because it's taken the film, perhaps taken the scene to a different place or give gives the film another slant. Or but you, but you could equally you know have the response, well yeah, it's really interesting, it's really cool, but it isn't quite necessarily what. In the bigger picture, we need. So yeah, I think yeah, you're, you're always mixing up the possibility of making something different or making a change. And in the end, though, what everyone wants from music is is emotion. And there are times for sure where it's quite ambiguous or neutral. But most of the time, when music's doing what it needs to, and it has to be subtle enough to be not to not be noticed, it's intensifying that emotion and. You know, the, the storyteller, the director is always understanding what what that emotion should be. So, you know, you, you are trying to to uh, always work uh, work to, to making sure that that is the right thing. And there are sometimes there are many ways. There's, I always say there's no right way to score a scene. You can turn around and do five different versions. All of them could be right. In, in the end, you, it's, it's, it comes down to sometimes to time, how much time there is to explore, but also when you get feedback from the director, you'll usually have a pretty clear idea of what, what's working for them and what is the right way to go. So often it's a lot about the composer steering the ship, this relationship between the composer and the director. The composer, no doubt, is steering uh, the ship with the music, but having the director's hands on the wheel, to use that kind of analogy, which is a, a tricky balance, isn't it, for the composer with the composer-director relationship to get right? How do, how do you manage and navigate through all of that? You're right. The director is usually always the person who would have the best understanding of that best handle on on the overall. Um, but but for sure, you know, the editors, the producers, everyone. Um, there are there are certainly other important people in that in that chain. Yeah, I guess I guess you're right. You can really steer it in many ways. But um, I you know I, I think if I was to take the film in a different direction from where it was meant to be, because it was something I liked, <laughs> then I'd be I'd be pulled up on that pretty quickly. And, 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 you are, and you would expect to as well. The composer doesn't always have perspective. It's so hard, I think, perspective, isn't it, to, to keep for anyone, you know, for everyone working in the, in the project. Um, I always find it incredible that directors are able to keep that perspective and, and know the story they're telling and never, sometimes it can be years between beginning and ending a project. So, well, that's an incredibly difficult thing to do. One of, one of the things I love about film composing is that every new film is in itself a, a new project and the project is not just the, the, the material because obviously that's the most important thing but who you're working with and their style and approach and, and so that can vary hugely from person to person um, you know some directors are very clear about what they want and you are absolutely working pretty closely on them with them on that but others can be more hands-off and say perhaps uh, you know go for it and often they'll have a strong opinion when it when something is wrong, but they perhaps are not quite so sort of interested in the in the details when it comes to you know the the nitty gritty of every moment. Yeah, and I have other people who I work with who are perhaps able to help me with that perspective as well. And to, you know, when you're in the midst of it, it can be hard to to see whether something's right. I think it's always good to get feedback, and uh, you know, most people will have someone that they can trust to be there editorial advisor. <laughs> I, I certainly do. You know, the directors, generally speaking, always going to have the, the most important perspective on it. I think directors probably, as they go on in their careers, get much better appreciation for the, the music and the composer. And what I mean by that is that in the beginning, not necessarily a director will understand the 
the way to express how they feel about music, what they're wanting, because directors are not composers. Uh, they don't have the understanding of the music language like a composer does, uh, which brings me on to this point. Do you, do you think that notes from directors sometimes might not be as harsh as what they are intended, meaning that it's easy for a composer in the beginning to read some notes from a director and think, wow, I've really failed on this cue, when in fact, even though the notes might not say it, going back and trying a little bit of a tweak here, a little bit of a tweak there, which isn't in the notes, uh, but suddenly the director says, wow, that's exactly what I was after. Yeah, that is an excellent point. Yeah, that, that, that's something I learned you know, midway through, I suppose, <laughs> my own journey. And I think it's when you get feedback from anyone, you're, you're trying to use words to describe music or what the music's doing. And that can be, that's a real can of worms, I think. And so usually the directors, I think, who, who do it best are, are not getting into the nitty gritty of anything in the music itself, but very much what they feel. And so if they're describing with, with words, that are, you know, words to describe emotion rather than words to describe music. That tends to be the best thing. And so often um, then a composer will go, oh, okay, I understand the tone's not quite right here. And it could actually be, as you say, just a very small tweak. I've certainly had, uh, you know, I've had, I've had both, but, you know, sometimes you will get feedback that suggests the whole cue's really not right. At the same time, you're trying to understand what would be right. But then when you, when you and perhaps this might come in the form of an email, but when you get together with the director, you might, discover actually no it's just the horn <laughs> it was one instrument <laughs> and yeah. you just take that instrument out and all of a sudden it's, it's working it's completely different uh, that that's the sort of stuff where you know you just you don't often know necessarily whether uh, whether there is you know a, a complete rewrite is involved or it's just a small a small tweak and i i've definitely had situations where it's a, it's a very small adjustment can can do the trick but obviously there are times when you know that Really, it's fundamentally not quite what they know, what they need for that moment, and that's when. Yeah, the, the, yeah, you're absolutely right. How to read the notes um, and how to interpret that is key. You actually build a wee bit of that through the process as well. So often you'll start a process, you know, the beginning of a film. You'll be talking with the director, and they'll say something, and you'll go cool, and you go off in a certain direction, and then you realise that's not what they meant. And so later, you can essentially have a. The longer you go, and the, and the more you talk. Um, the more you start to realise what ideas are, how, how ideas are being communicated, which makes a big difference, I think, to, to finding them quickly, which is so often the biggest challenge. It's usually always against the clock. I don't think writing the music is hard. <laughs> it's writing the music w within the time frame. That's often really the, the, hardest, the hardest challenge of all. I know, speaking from experience for myself, just different music instruments and, as you said, pulling a musical instrument out, I probably wasn't so cued into that. But now I can hear all of those different musical instruments and I know before the composer even pulls it out what that will actually sound like and what it will do with the emotion of that scene. Yeah, that's true. And so some directors actually have a really good understanding of what is going on in the music. And, how, and, and that can be great because it can help you really identify those elements. I guess the danger is if they do get specific, but they don't necessarily understand, and that then you could you could go down the wrong track. I've I've had directors talk about instruments when they are actually completely a different instrument, or not even a different family of instruments. So they might be talking about brass, but really they mean basses or they mean winds. And if you're getting specific about stuff, you could actually um, you know go to the trouble of reworking something and realise they just meant something different. So for the most part, when they're talking emotional language, that is usually the best feedback. As you say, if you're sort of sitting down together, it can be quite good because you, you can then say, well, does this make a difference? And you can try something really quickly. So there is a value to being able to be in, to be able to get together in that way. You don't have to be in the same room. You can do it, you can do it via Skype, but having the ability to tweak stuff, sometimes when, that, when there's an issue, that can be really, really helpful. And how conscious are you in not telegraphing a moment in a scene where the music moments can take out the punch part of the scene. An easy example is a, a music ramp. Sometimes that music ramp can totally telegraph the scare moment of a scene, which obviously you don't want. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. You you have to get those things in the right place a lot of the time. If you if you're a moment too soon or 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 late, then that doesn't work. But no doubt, there's sometimes where I mean, if you if you're working if you if it's a scare and you really want that scare, then it should it should be a surprise. I think all composers have a a, tem- a tendency. There's a, there's a temptation to stay in tempo. It's just natural. <laughs> so um, I remember uh, John Woodford Robson. We were talking about about a scene. I think it's in Sixth Sense where there's a where there's a scare that happens and it's out of time and it's really powerful, really effective. And I know that many you know many compo- many composers will ramp up to a scare. So yes, generally it will undermine the power of, of the fright of the scare. But there are but there are times where it works a trick because you may not be after a sudden shock, but it, but you're really looking to add more weight, so you can you can add a heck of a lot of weight if you use a ramp. Um, so the gravitas of that moment can be hugely emphasised, but you lose the surprise. Um, so, so these are choices I guess you have to make. Sometimes you don't know until you try and play, and the director will make that call. But yeah, I think most of the time you're balancing what to telegraph and what not to. I think that's a really good point. There are particularly with the more subtle stuff. You know, where to start the music cue is often crucial in any scene because you don't want to draw attention to it and the beginning is usually the most likely place where an audience member a person watching will feel the, the change uh so that's that's super important you know you, you're also um always walking the line i think with music between being noticed not being noticed and affecting people in the, in the subtlest way possible the the crucial dramatic moments often will need to be nuanced they need to be telegraphed, as you say. If the audience is conscious of it, you've probably lost them. <laughs> it's going to be less powerful. So, yeah, that, that's very much the line you're walking when you're scoring any narrative is how to turn moments, how to change things, um, and to guide the audience's emotional response. Yeah, see, directors, uh, they do misdirects all the time. Like you might have a red herring. It's a misdirect. It's deliberate on purpose. What I've learned now with music is you can do a similar thing. You can do a misdirect. You can totally misdirect. And I'm not sure about that sixth sense. Maybe that that's in part of what you were what you were talking about with that scene. But musically, if you had a ramp as a misdirect and the real scare moment actually came a beat after the ramp when you're not expecting, we see this all the time. You know, the the way that you can inform a scare moment through a misdirect, yeah, that's a very powerful way just to elevate a, a scare moment. Yeah. Um, misdirect is, is really interesting. I I guess you use it a lot in comedy as well when you think about setting up a joke or where the music hits or stops and starts. That, that, that stuff's really important and, and, and allowing the space for the joke sometimes. Yeah, but but in terms of a scare, yeah, a, a lot of that stuff is is just kind of creating, I guess, a, a visceral response from the audience, and there yeah, are different ways of doing it. There's a great moment in Minority Report when John Williams, when I think it's Agatha who's in the water, and she's asleep. We think she's completely asleep, and just before she wakes, like at the like a half a second before, there's a big music stab, and it's terrifying. <laughs> it's so powerful. You, if you telegraphed that, you'd obviously, you know, it wouldn't work. So, but there was no music before it. You really needed that to just jump out at you. And he, he does it quite a lot. Whereas, you know, other composers will have a, a tone that lures us into a, a calm and then then you'll be a hit. But as you say, music can lead or mislead wherever you want. And I guess no more true than in a horror. You know, any kind of scary tension, unease, uh, the, the music has the power to, to really change what we feel about what we see. So that's very much the director's tool to, to play with. Um, and no doubt music is critical, you know, in the way that those stories are told. And how important is baking in the score and connecting music cues across the entire film? Uh, because on one hand, it's an automatic thing that composers will look to do. On the other side, does the audience really feel all of those connections? Yeah, good question. I think mostly those things are subconscious. I don't reckon the audience is aware of them. I've always had this theory that music is is more powerful when, when it's familiar. And if I think of just about every pop song I've ever loved or any piece of music, the first time I heard it, 
I wasn't in love with it. I might have liked it. But second, third, fourth, tenth time, that's often when I'll really be affected. And it's hard to know whether that, what's going on in your brain when that happens. You know, is it because you've kind of developed an association with it, um, with certain things? Or is it simply familiarity and something in you has an expectation of where that music's going to go and when it does go there, it's very satisfying. Those are really deep psychological questions and, <laughs> and a composer probably isn't required to understand those, but we obviously are playing in that, in that sandpit. So I'm, you know, I'm a believer in setting up and paying off themes. And I think if you do it well, then ultimately you, from the beginning of a film to the end of the film, you can create quite a familiarity that's subconscious with the audience. It really is literally, it's like another channel on the, if you think of the soundtrack of a film, you've, you know, you've got channels operating and this is a subliminal channel, if you like, and you can connect something from the beginning to the end and you can create familiarity through so that in those crucial moments where something really important is happening and, and, and the biggest payoffs in the movie, you get that emotional payoff that you've, you've set up and you paid it off at the end. You'll really get, I think, a much more powerful response from the audience because they, for some reason, is kind of magical. They've allowed the music in already and associated it with that subliminally, and then they're much more likely to be moved by it, I think. Yeah, I agree. I, th I think the baking in of the score has to be on a subconscious level. If it's not on a subconscious level, it becomes more obvious. And I just wonder if there's, in the past, there have been some composers that are so concentrated on baking in the score right across the film that it has become a little bit obvious to the viewer. That's a really good question. And, you know, I think it would be a worthy study for an academic, if you think of genre, there's no doubt that, you know, if you're working, if you're in the family genre, for example, if you're in a Disney sort of area, then the themes you create can be much more overt and the music, there'll be more music and it'll be more prominent. And the audience expects that, so it doesn't feel wrong. An adult might be watching that movie and they'll have a different set of critical eyes, even if it's subliminal, than if they're watching, you know, The Man in the High Castle or something, you know, an intense drama. So I think if the music is doing too much or trying to do too much, then the audience are going to notice it. And I think really that's just the art of, of good school composing. I think you can be really, you can have these at a high level, as we just described, you know, in a, in a Disney movie or, or any kind of a genre film where the music clearly has to be, you know, is, is, is going to play more of a part. If it's done well, then the audience will accept it, I think, and they won't question it. But if it's not done well, and their, their attention is drawn to it, they'll think, oh, feels a bit schmaltzy. They may not even know it's the music. They might think the film's a bit schmaltzy. That just felt a little bit syrupy to me or a bit melodramatic. And maybe that's really the music not doing what it's supposed to do. But if it's good, then, you know, even a kind of high concept score or a highly melodic score will be fine. Pretty much, you know, the genre will, will allow or not allow that. And if it is allowed, you know, then it will be set up really well at the front. You've been listening to The Film Podcast with Craig Newland, your weekly podcast about all things behind the camera and in front of it. Until next time, have a great week.